passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Life in the church can be difficult. Many of us have experienced that uh, ourselves, haven't we? It's not at all uncommon for people who want to follow God faithfully to find themselves in a situation where they are wounded by the church, that they are disillusioned by the church because of their past experiences with the church. For some people, it can be close to impossible for them to return to Christian fellowship, even though they desire to honor God, even though they desire to honor His teachings. You might find yourself in a place where you have friends who feel these sentiments. Perhaps you yourself have expressed these types of feelings and had these experiences in the past. And right now, you're just trying to get into the church again after a season of hurt and a season of pain. We might ask ourselves, well, does the Bible tell us on how the Christian community should live? Does the Bible tell us how we as Christians should handle conflict with one another in the church? Does it give us any guidance? Does it give us any insight on how to live alongside other people in an authentic community, not just a shallow one, but an authentic community that, to think of of 1 Corinthians 13, when it talks about love, endures all things, suffers many things, and also seeks the good of all parties. That's what this morning's passage is about. This morning, we continue our journey through Colossians chapter 3. We're picking up where we left off in the past few weeks. If you haven't been with us uh, over these past few weeks, we've been spending some time just looking at the the meat of the application of everything that Paul has said up to this point. Colossians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 2 are all about exhortation, or excuse me, about exposition or exaltation. They're telling us about the greatness of who Jesus is. And then when we get to chapter 3, there is this shift in Paul's thinking. There's a transition to focus on exhortation or because of who Christ is, because of what Christ has done for you, this is how you are to live. And so a couple weeks ago, we were in Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 through 4, and we saw the key for us as Christians to bear much fruit in our lives, the key to spiritual growth. And that key is found in focusing on Christ not on the many other alternative paths to commitment, to the alternative paths to meaning and significance that our world offers us today. Last week, we looked at Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11. This is a passage that talks about the theological act of mortification. This is the act of of dying to self. It's a key piece of of following Christ faithfully. It's, It's in order for us to become more and more like Jesus, in order for us to, to live out our true identity as those who are united with Christ, then we must put to death the old self. As we are all aware, we don't automatically become perfect when we become Christians. If anything, we become more and more aware of our sin, more aware of the areas of our lives that aren't honoring to God, that are unpleasing to Him. And so the Christian life, a necessary part of it, is to continue to put to death the old self, to bridge the gap between who we once were and who we now are 
in Christ. Paul talked about this last week, and he used this imagery of the change of clothes. We're to remove our old, rotten, grave clothes, and now we are to, in Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17, dress ourselves with new clothes. We are to dress ourselves with the character of Christ. Theologically, this is called vivification. It is the counterpart to mortification. So put to death the old self and now put on or bring about the new life that we have been given in Christ. But God isn't just focused on the new life as individuals. God isn't just focused on how you as an individual act and how you bear fruit. God's primary concern, as we see in this passage, is how you will live a Christ-like life in the context of relationship with other Christians. How you are to bear fruit in relationship and connection to other Christians. And Paul recognizes that living with other Christians can be just as difficult in the first century as it can be today. And so he takes time to describe how our new life affects the way that we live in community with one another. He takes time to address this when it would just be easier for him to say something like, well, why don't you just avoid that person? Or or just don't worry about that church. Just focus on you and God. Paul says this because Christian community is an essential part of God's plan. The church is an essential part of God's plan to make his children, to make you more like Christ. And if we remove ourselves from the at times uncomfortable feelings that we get in the church, the at times pain that we experience in the church, in life with other Christians, then we're actually removing ourselves from one of God's good gifts. One of God's purposes and plans for us to grow and to glorify Him. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. This morning's passage gives us one simple charge, one that has something for each of us this morning, no matter what your past is like. If you are someone who has a past where you can instantly think of one or two or ten people from your past who, who you don't get along with in the church and you want to get along with but you've struggled with in the past, this passage is for you. If you found yourself in a place where you've been deeply wounded by the church in the past and you, you're just now giving yourself a chance, giving the church a chance again, then this passage is for you. And if you find yourself in a place where you are having good experience in the church, or you've never really had a bad experience in the church, you really just get along with everyone in the church, then this passage is still for you. You see, this passage calls us to one simple truth. It's this, as sons and daughters of God, let us continually reflect the Son of God in the community of God. As the children of God, we should increasingly reflect the Son of God in the community of God. One of the primary battlefields for you to bear fruit in your life as a Christian is found in your relationship with other Christians. How you interact with others who bear the name Christian is a good barometer. It's not the only barometer, but it is a good barometer of your own spiritual growth. 
And so as we go through this passage, reflect on how you can clothe yourself with the character of Christ, specifically when you are dealing with other Christians. This morning, we're going to just follow this passage verse by verse. It's a, it's a simple passage, a straightforward passage. First, we're going to look at the character of Christ that we are called to clothe ourselves in. Then we're going to look at how we are to live with other Christians. And finally, we're going to look at the, the high calling that God has for each and every one of us to not just focus on our own spiritual growth, but to focus on the growth of those who are surrounding us this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along, starting in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Hear these words from Colossians 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if you have a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body. And be thankful, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. As we look at this passage, starting in verse 15, we first see a command to clothe ourselves with the character of Christ, to clothe ourselves with the character of Christ. Immediately after Paul in the previous section has has told the church to get rid of their desires and reactions of their old heart, to get rid of their old clothes, we see that we are to dress ourselves in a way that, that corresponds to our new self to dress ourselves with a new set of clothes. And these clothes are the character of Christ. But as we always see in the Bible, this command isn't just given to us as a way for us to earn God's favor, but instead it's actually as a result of our identity in Christ. Here we are reminded of our identity at the beginning of verse 12. Notice how verse 12 begins. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. The command to put on, the command to clothe ourselves is rooted first and foremost in who we are. We are chosen, holy, and beloved. These are terms that are used to describe the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 7 says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his, whole, for his treasured possession out of all of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any people that the Lord set his love on you. And he chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. More significantly, this is not just used to describe Israel in the Old Testament. It's also used to describe Christ in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 12, describing Jesus. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. At Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And out of the mouths of the enemies of the Messiah, we see this description of Jesus, Mark chapter 1. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are 
the Holy One of God. What an incredible thought that because of what Christ has done for us, because of our union with Him, we're now seen in the exact same way by the Father as He sees His beloved, perfectly obedient Son. You are the beloved of God. There is nothing that you have to do. There is nothing that you can do to earn the favor of your Father. It is given to you freely as a child. You are holy in God's sight. You are set apart, pure, undefiled. Your spiritual growth may increasingly glorify God in Christ, yes, but it will never affect your status before Him. You are holy. You are His holy one. You are chosen by God. As Ephesians 1 tells us, we have been chosen before the foundation of the world. What a great, incredible mystery this is that God has chosen us. Even he's, he chose Israel in the Old Testament, chosen not because of anything we have done, but because of his incredible mercy to make great his marvelous grace. Consider these words from Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his, will, of his will. It is only once we grasp these truths about ourselves that we have been chosen, that we are beloved, that we have been made holy, that we can begin to make strides in our spiritual growth in a way that glorifies God. And so we must continually remind ourselves, we must continually cling to these things as we put on the character of Christ. That's the foundation that Paul lays at the beginning of verse 12. Then from there, he lists five virtues that we as Christians are called to dress ourselves with. What's significant is that each of these different virtues is used in the New Testament and in the Old to describe Christ and God. It is a reminder to us that we are increasingly to become more and more like Christ, to become more and more like God in our lives. So let's take a look at each one of these briefly. The first one that he lists is compassionate hearts. I, I think a better way of looking at this is, is compassionate insides. The word heart here is, is actually something that refers to the entirety of our insides. It's a compassion where the entire body aches with a desire to intercede, a desire to help those who need great mercy. It is this, comp this, this compassion that moves Jesus to act countless times in the Gospels. It is this compassion that leads to tears at Lazarus's grave from Jesus. This is a compassion that sees hurt, that sees pain in the world and feels that hurt and pain itself until it does something to make things right. Paul says that we are to put on this gut-wrenching compassion. 
Second, Paul mentions kindness. The kindness of God is constantly on display toward humanity, both to the just and to the unjust. It is this kindness, this generosity, this grace, this mercy that God intends to lead humanity to repentance. And it is this kindness, this grace, this generosity, this mercy that we are to show toward others. Kindness is in short supply in human relationships, isn't it? There's a famous anecdote, uh, some correspondence between George Bernard Shaw and Winston Churchill. Shaw once famously wrote to Churchill, enclosed are two tickets to the opening night of my first play. Bring a friend if you have one. Not to be outdone, Churchill replied, dear Mr. Shaw, I'm unable to attend your first night due to a prior engagement. Please send tickets to a second night if there is one. Our world is in desperate need for this type of kindness in its dialogue with one another. Should not this kindness start with those who are clothed with the character of Christ? So put on kindness, a considerate care and concern for others. Third, Paul mentions humility. Paul writes in a, in a culture that sees humility as a weakness, something not to be desired. In fact, it isn't until the New Testament is written that the word humility is used in a good way. You see here, Paul calls on the church to emulate Christ. It's this Christian mindset that has changed the world. It's this mindset that we see from Harry Truman when he says, you can accomplish anything in life as long as you don't mind who gets the credit. Humility is not thinking less of yourselves, but it's thinking of yourself less. It's a genuine concern, a genuine care for the needs of others. It is this that is the epitome of Jesus' earthly ministry, is it not? It's what Paul has in mind when he describes Jesus in Philippians 2, and he calls the church to, to mimic Jesus when he says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul isn't telling us when he talks about humility to neglect the care of self, but to be focused on more than just ourselves, to be concerned, and indeed to think of others greater than ourselves, to serve others. If you want to bear much fruit, then put on this strange, otherworldly, countercultural humility. The next thing that Paul mentions is meekness or gentleness. This idea of being meek doesn't mean to be weak, but rather it's strength under control. A.W. Tozer in his book, uh, The Pursuit of God, describes meekness in a powerful way. I just want to read to you this paragraph. The meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimates of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God has declared him to be. But, paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God more, of more importance than angels. In himself, he is nothing. In God, he is everything. And that is his motto. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him. And, and I love this line, he has stopped caring. 
He rests perfectly content to allow God to place his own values. He will be patient to wait for the day when everything will get its own price tag and real worth will come into its own. Then the righteous shall shine forth in the kingdom of their father. The meek one is willing to wait for that day. What a powerful perspective, is that not? Tozer goes on to, to describe the rest that comes from knowing our place in God's economy, to, to know the, the idea of who we are in God's sight, that we are both chosen, beloved, and holy, and yet also at the same time that we are mere creatures. Can you think of a better picture of meekness, of this strong power, and yet also at the same time a contentment in God's timing and in God's plan. One who doesn't seek to grasp something for himself, but waits for God to bring things about. Christ is the perfect example. And so put on this meekness, put on this character of Christ. And then finally, Paul mentions patience. In the face of hardship, in the face of of suffering, we are called to be faithful and steadfast. If you feel as though you have been wronged, if you feel like you've been passed up for opportunities given to those who are less skilled than you, less talented than you, less qualified than you, remember Paul's words here. Remain patient. Remain steadfast. Clothe yourself with these things. Paul takes this list which really just focuses on us as individuals, and then he transitions and says, well, this is how this applies to the Christian community. Paul is concerned, first and foremost, with how we live among one another. And so Paul spends some time in verses 13 through 15 looking at how we are to live in community. Uh, He he looks at it um, in verses 13 through 15. Let's take a look at those again. Uh, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body. Another truth for us this morning is simply this. Living in community starts with the character of Christ. Living in community starts with the character of Christ. It is impossible for us to live faithfully with one another unless we first begin to increasingly reflect Christ. Here in these verses, Paul gives us a couple commands. The first one is a command to bear with one another. This is something that is important for us, no matter the context, no matter the relationship, whether it's with other Christians, whether it's with families, whether it's in the workplace, whether it's holiday gatherings, any sort of relationship. Bear with one another. When we live in relationship with other people, it will bring us into conflict. One doesn't have to think too long to think of a conflict, whether it's serious or or small, that you have had with a sibling, a a spouse, a friend, a co-worker, someone else. Now, many times these conflicts can be minor. They aren't even necessarily sinful, though sometimes our actions or reactions to these situations can be sinful. So let me use an example of a, a minor sort of conflict. Uh, this is from our example on Friday night. 
uh, from our house on Friday night. Crystal and I were making homemade pizza, and uh, I wanted pepperoni on my pizza. She wanted uh, pepperoni and green pepper on hers. I have no idea why she would ever do that to a piece of pizza, but that's what she wanted. This is an example of conflict, of tension in our relationship. Now, is this minute? Well, hopefully, but, but I, I do love my pizza toppings. It, it is minute. It's easy to resolve. Obviously, you just put pepperoni on one half and pepperoni and green peppers on the other half and just make the kids eat whatever they are given. But it's important for us to see that this is a conflict. It's a tension. It's not necessarily sinful. It's not rooted in sin. It's rooted in our different personalities. It's rooted in our different tastes. It's rooted in our different preferences, on and on and on. But here's why this matters. Conflict is inevitable whenever we interact with someone besides ourselves. And when conflict occurs, we need to remember that most of the time we are not in conflict with the other person. We're actually in conflict with our own hearts. Let's go back to the pizza illustration. Whatever, for whatever reason, let's say Crystal and I, we, we just can't agree that we're going to, to make half pepperoni and half pepperoni and green pepper. It's all or nothing. This tension, this conflict is with one another, but even deeper, we're in conflict with our own hearts. We're being confronted with our own hearts. We're being forced to ask, which do I love more? Do I love my pepperoni pizza being unsoiled by the blasphemous green peppers? Or do I love my wife? Which do I love more? So you see, conflict specifically, relationships more generally, provide us with a necessary environment where God wants to work in our hearts. Are we going to bear with others in the small things, in the minute things, and see them as an opportunity for spiritual growth? Are we going to see them as an opportunity to choose others over self, for us to die to self, to put on meekness, to clothe ourselves with humility, a focus on serving others? You see why God is deeply concerned with relationships? Because relationships are one of the key ways that he works in our hearts. Now, just because uh, we, we desire to serve one another doesn't mean that I automatically cave every single time that we go ahead and, and make pizza. I don't say anything. It's good and healthy for, us to, for me to say, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of green peppers on my pizza, but I love you. And I value our relationship more than my own preferences, so let's go ahead and add the green peppers. It's okay to say that, though I wouldn't recommend saying it that way. It just sounds really, really weird when you talk about pizza in such significant terms. Relationships aren't just concerned with our own spiritual growth. They're also concerned with the spiritual growth of others. That's why God puts us into conflict and tension with one another, even when it's not sinful. But what about things that aren't pizza toppings? What about personality traits of other people that just kind of rub you the wrong way? We're not talking about wrongdoing. We're not talking about sin beyond your own sin. 
How do we live in fellowship? Are we going to exclude that person from fellowship? Are we going to succumb to the temptation to paint them as a worse person than they, already, than they, than they are, either to other people or just begin to think of them that way? Or are you going to bear with them? Are you going to walk with them? Are you going to continue in fellowship with them? C.S. Lewis once said, every man should keep a fair-sized cemetery in which to bury the faults of his friends. I think that applies not just to friends, but also to the church. Each of us should have a fair-sized cemetery in which to bury the faults of those that we worship with. This is part of bearing with one another. This is a crucial part of your growth as Christians. Do you see how key it is in God's plan for community to be used to shape you more and more into the image of his son? But of course, conflict does oftentimes involve sin as well. All of us have suffered pain, heartbreak at the hands of others. Perhaps you've been betrayed by a close friend, by a family member that leaves you picking up the pieces of your life. Perhaps you find yourself in in a place where you are, uh, where someone backs out of a business deal, leaving you at a great loss of money. Perhaps you've gotten into legal trouble due to the betrayal of others. Someone that you thought you were helping with has now taken you to court for damages. All of us find ourselves in conflict that is rooted in sin as well. And so how do we handle these situations? How do we respond? Well, that's Paul's second command here. He says to forgive one another, especially in the church community, to forgive one another. And Paul gives us several principles here on forgiveness in this passage as well as in the rest of the New Testament for the the Christian community, but even just for relationships at large. Let's take a look at a few of these. First is this, forgiveness is a journey that starts with the cross. Forgiveness is a journey that starts with the cross. You've been forgiven much, so forgive. At the beginning of the 1900s, there was a great persecution of Christians that spread throughout China as a part of the political uprising at that time. A small community of Christians in a small community watched as 54 of their men, women, and children were slaughtered And in response to this murder, these Christians wrote down the names of the men who committed these atrocities. They wrote down 250 people. And they made a pact that if any of the people that were on that list of 250 people ever showed their face in that village, then they would kill them. How could they possibly let go of their pain and their thirst for revenge? To them, this list seemed like the only legitimate way for them to honor the memory of their dead loved ones. So how could they possibly forgive? How could they possibly let go of the pain? It was only through the repeated preaching of the cross in response to one particularly powerful sermon on the power of forgiveness, on the power of the cross, on the power of what God has done for us, this community took that list, they tore it up, and they threw it in the fire. A powerful, tangible symbol of forgiveness. A reminder to each of them that every time they were consumed with bitterness, consumed with with pain and, and hatred toward these people, that they had given that up. They had thrown it in the fire. 
that they were moving forward. This forgiveness starts with a realization of our own forgiveness at the cross. Second, forgiveness is a commitment to place the wrongdoing in God's hands. It's a commitment to place the wrongdoing in God's hands. How was it that these Christians that we just mentioned were able to let go of their pain, let go of their hurt, their thirst for vengeance? It was only by entrusting the wrongdoing into God's hands. Forgiveness takes an unshakable confidence that there will be justice for every single wrong that you have suffered. Every single wrong that you have suffered, there will be justice for. And that will either come on the cross or it will come on judgment day. It is not your responsibility to mete out judgment, but instead to entrust it to the just judge. And this can be costly. It comes at great cost to forgive other people. It costs a great deal for us to hand things over to God, to let go of our right to be hurt, to let go of our right to to feel vengeance, to let go of our right to desire to be made right. How is it that we can move forward? By remembering our own forgiveness at the cross. Third, forgiveness is a different act than reconciliation. Just because you forgive someone a decision to entrust the the decision of justice into God's hands, just because you forgive someone doesn't mean that you have to be restored to a perfectly, uh, you know, healthy relationship. Sometimes a fully restored relationship is impossible. For example, you can forgive someone who hurts you. You can forgive someone who hurts your children. But that doesn't mean that you have to allow them to do it again. Forgiveness only takes you. You you don't need the other party to forgive someone. Reconciliation takes two parties who are willing to work to, to die to self. And sometimes that doesn't happen. Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Fourth, forgiveness is a continuous process. It would be wrong for us to think that forgiveness is just a one-time thing. The more heinous the hurt, the more often we're going to have to let go and remind ourselves to, to let go, to hand over justice, to hand over judgment to God, not to take those things into our own hands. That's why as we began looking at forgiveness, we said that forgiveness is a journey that starts with a cross. It's because it isn't just a one-time thing. It's a continuous process. And finally, forgiveness is a healing for you as much as it is for the other person. For you to hold on to bitterness, for you to hold on to to anger, to hold on to vengeance and hurt feelings leaves your heart in a, a very sick state. And God doesn't want your heart to be sick. Forgiveness is costly, as we already mentioned, but bitterness poisons your soul. God wants you to offer forgiveness to other people because God deeply cares about working in your own heart, and that's impossible unless you forgive others. And so Paul says, in all of this, put on love. Love is the crowning jewel, the crowning grace of the Christian. It's going to be impossible for us to be kind, compassionate, humble, meek, and patient without love. So put on love. 
just as Christ revealed his love to us at the cross. And when we do this, when we make a conscious decision to love others, to bear with others, to forgive others, then we're letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. The word here in verse 15, this word rule, is an athletic term that refers to a judge, someone who decides whether someone is eligible to compete or whether they're disqualified because they haven't followed the rules. And so what Paul is saying is that when we put on love, when we commit ourselves to love others, when we entrust God with all of our hurts, all of our wrongdoing, all of our pain, then what we're doing is we're entrusting God to be that judge, to be the one who determines what's right and wrong, what's just and unjust. How we interact with others is ultimately rooted in our love. So love one another. As we close, just a few more thoughts here from verses 16 and 17. Let's read these verses once more. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Here we have one more truth, a guiding principle for us this morning. You are a part of God's plan for your neighbor's spiritual growth. You are a part of God's plan for your neighbor's spiritual growth. One thing about Christian community and what it reminds us is that God is equally concerned about your neighbor's spiritual growth, the person who's sitting right next to you, the person that's sitting across the aisle, the person who is sitting on the other side of the church. God is equally concerned about their spiritual growth as he is about your own. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, has placed us in community with others so that we can play a part in that process. And that's what Paul describes here. Let's take a look at just a few phrases. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ, the teachings of Jesus, the teachings about Jesus are the foundation for our own spiritual growth. That's true for us as individuals. That's true for us as a corporate body. Scripture should take up residence, should dwell in us as the catalyst for spiritual growth. And Scripture should take up residence, should dwell in us as a church for the catalyst for spiritual growth. Growth on any other foundation will fail. Another phrase here, teaching and admonishing one another. Each of us plays a role in the growth of those who are around us. Teaching is a positive term. Admonishment is a a corrective term. And we are called to do both in community, in our relationships with others. We are to teach others from the Word of God, and we are to admonish one another from the Word of God. And we are to do this with all wisdom. How can we do that if the Word of Christ doesn't dwell within us richly? This may sound uh, intimidating to you, so Paul gives an example for us of one of the tangible ways that we actually do every single Sunday when we gather for worship, for one of the ways that we teach each other and we admonish each other, whether we realize it or not. Paul mentions that one of the ways that we teach and admonish each other is through the singing of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Whether we realize it or not, that's one of the reasons why we sing every single time we gather together. It's, it's absolutely about worship and it's absolutely about praising God. Verse 17 makes that very clear. But there is a dimension of our worship that's not just horizontal, but it's also, excuse me, not just vertical, but also horizontal. 
The horizontal dimension of our worship is why it's so crucial for us to sing songs that are biblically accurate. It's because we are confessing truths to one another when we sing. And we will be shaped by the songs that we sing. God has great plans, great expectations for his church and how he will use it to shape each and every one of us. You might be asking, well, what's the result of this dwelling of Christ in you? Uh, what's the, the, wor- the word of Christ dwelling in you? What's the result of the Christian community being used by God to mold you, to shape you, to make you more like him? That's what verse 17 is about. This mindset that views all of life through the lens of how we can glorify God. Verse 17 is a bookend to what began in verses 1 through 4. When we are successful, according to verses 1 through 4, in setting our minds on the things above, and remember, to set our minds on Christ and look at all of life through that lens, when we are successful in doing that, when we are successful in actively putting to death the old things of our heart, when we are active in clothing ourselves with the character of Christ for others, then we increasingly live all of life in a conscious awareness of God's presence, and the way we reflect upon his glory. That's what this passage is about. And so as we close, remember our calling. As the sons and daughters of God, as the children of God, let us increasingly reflect the Son of God. But specifically, here, in the community of God. And we do this by putting off putting on the character of Christ. We do this by putting off the old self. We do this by bearing with one another, by forgiving one another. And we do this by letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Let's pray. God, we do ask that you would help us That first and foremost, we would remember our union with you, that we would remember our calling, that we are chosen, holy, beloved, and that from that place, we would live lives that honor you, that bear much fruit, that bear with one another, that forgive one another, lives that increasingly reflect the image of your Son. Help us, God. And it's for Christ's sake that we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.